Okay, what's up, comrades? Welcome to the Left Side of Liberty podcast. It's good to be back with you. I apologize for uh, not being with you guys for a few weeks here. I was looking for a job, and now I've been hired uh, appropriately (laughs) by my local radio station. So that's why I've been MIA lately, but... Uh, This is my way of making it up to you guys. I'm going to do a special of sorts today. It's two parts. Uh, So for the first half, I'm going to talk about my favorite and least favorite Democratic candidates for the uh, 2020 election. And for the second half, I'm going to talk about the mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso that happened recently. And obviously it's a very tragic thing. And I really, I I feel terribly for those people that lost their lives. However, uh, it, this will also give me a chance to lay out my position on gun control and gun rights and things like that, because I've never really aired those feelings out on air. <laughs> um, I've never really given my position on that issue since I've been doing this podcast. So... You'll hear, for the second half, you'll hear my position on gun rights and uh, gun control and things like that, because I've been all over the map on this issue. I've kind of, as I've read more about it, it's one of those things where as I've read more about it and thought more about it, my opinion has changed significantly uh, on the gun rights and gun control issue. So with that said, let's dive right into it. So as we all know, the 20, the 2020 election is right around the corner and I'm actually kind of sort of excited for it just to see uh, just the reaction from basically partisan hacks on, you know, for both parties, you know, you have people like Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh that are going to defend Trump no matter what. And then you'll have people like Jake Tapper and Wolf Blitzer and Chris Cuomo defending the establishment Democrats at all costs. And uh, also MSNBC as well will defend the establishment Democrats at all costs. I think that's fairly evident because, well, first of all, the media was like, hey guys, uh, do you like Joe Biden? Oh, you don't like Joe Biden? Okay, uh, we'll go with Kamala Harris, you know, she's 
She's black and she's a female, so obviously she's qualified to be president. It's like, no, you idiots. Her record is what qualifies her or disqualifies her as a presidential candidate. That's the uh, legitimizing factor. So, unbelievable, man. So then, they're, so then when nobody cared about Kamala, they're like, oh, you don't like Kamala? Okay, uh, Beto. Uh, we'll, we'll go with Beto. Uh, and it turns out, whoops, nobody cares about Beto either. So, okay, uh, Mayor Pete. Let's, 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 uh, get behind him because he's gay. Hello. You know, so he's part of the LGBTQ community and he speaks Norwegian. What an intellectual he is. You know, it's like, so, and, and now they're kind of back on the, uh, Kamala train since she admittedly in the first debate, she did very well going after Joe Biden for his, uh, support of racist policies in the past and segregationist policies uh, in the past. So credit where credit is due on that. She did do a good job at going after things like that in the first debate. But then Tulsi Gabbard just clobbered Kamala Harris uh, on her record as a prosecutor and basically laughing when she was uh, in California and she was still uh, the uh, state attorney general, I think, in California. So there was a Republican running against her that was for legalizing marijuana. And when a reporter asked her, hey, do you support the legalization of marijuana? She literally laughed in this reporter's face. There's video of it. You can see she literally laughs in her face. And do you know how many... You know, I can't even begin to comprehend how, comprehend how many lives have been screwed up due to Kamala Harris's position on marijuana legalization. So, uh, but anyway, putting that aside, I want to lay out some of my favorite and least favorite candidates. Uh, so far. Now, I know that um, Tim Ryan has dropped out, so I'm not really going to talk about him. And I know uh, Mike Gravel has dropped out, but they wouldn't let the guy in the debates, so I can't really say anything about him one way or, or the other because I'm not a Mike Gravel expert. So uh, he will be spared in this as well. So my first let's go with my favorite candidates. So I actually do like a few of these candidates. Now, do I think that they're going to totally uh dismantle the status quo and you know bring about, like, a socialist revolution, you know? Uh, no. But, somebody like Bernie Sanders has proposed putting, I think, either 40 or 50% 
mandating that like 49% or something like that uh, of the boards of directors at large corporations have to be workers. And that's that's a, uh, a step in the right direction. That is uh, a very common quasi-socialist position. So again, as I think I've said before in this podcast, it's it's funny how after five or so years of relentless, oh, Bernie's a socialist, Bernie's a socialist, Bernie's a socialist, he actually proposes a quasi-socialist policy. So, uh, but anyway, so yeah, Bernie is right up there. I used to like him a lot more, and now I like him kind of less because he kind of uh, fell for the propaganda about Venezuela and you know am I happy with Maduro no I've said it a million times I despise Maduro but I don't think that that's necessarily a reason to believe things that the Pentagon tells us when they've lied so many times before and I don't think that you know it's necessary therefore to buy into CIA propaganda and deep state propaganda and all that other nonsense that is used to justify the unjustifiable, if you will. And that is aggressive military action in a foreign country that is not defensive. This is, it is by definition, uh, aggressive. This is not a defensive thing. Venezuela is not an imminent threat to the United States. It just isn't. So, and and Bernie came out and like, oh, you know, uh, we need to... Now, he walked back from the regime change kind of thing. Now, now he didn't overtly call for regime change, but he kind of implied it in a tweet uh, that he sent, like, oh, Maduro's a bad guy, and... You know, I think he said something like, we should do something. So I don't know if he meant diplomatically or whatever, but what I would say to Bernie is, no, just leave them alone, you know? Um, but uh, he did backtrack on that and say, well, we shouldn't attack uh, people that haven't attacked us first. And, you know, U.S. sanctions have largely contributed to the Venezuelan uh, the collapse of the Venezuelan economy so he did backtrack on that and he has backed off a little bit on the actually well to be fair quite significantly on the Russiagate thing even though I'm still kind of mad at him for that I'm mad at him for endorsing Hillary uh not that I necessarily wanted him to endorse Trump, but don't endorse anybody. How about that? Um, so there's plenty to criticize about Bernie Sanders, but he's right up there as, as one of my favorites. Another one of my favorites is Tulsi Gabbard. And that is mainly because she, in my view, has the best foreign policy of anybody on that stage. And she is a soldier, so and she served in Afghanistan, I believe. And so she knows firsthand the costs of war and the damage it does to 
to to families, to societies, to, to countries. She knows what it does. So what she wants to do is minimize that as much as possible. Now, she is in favor, as am I, of intervening in places if there's an imminent threat of attack or a direct attack on us. But she's like, these petty regime change wars that that uh, uh, that we're trying to engage in and that we're already engaging in, like Syria, that's an attempt to overthrow the Assad regime. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. Uh, and now currently, again, in Iran and Venezuela, you know, they're trying to ramp up tensions and escalate them to the point where uh, we get sucked into yet, you know, two more wars. Um, so yeah, Tulsi Gabbard is definitely the best uh, candidate on foreign policy. I totally uh, agree with her on, you know, the regime change war stuff and, you know, she's just, she's just a good candidate overall. She is on the right side of a lot of major policy issues, not just foreign policy, but other issues that I guess we would call progressive as well. So yeah, Tulsi, I, I give her a lot of credit and I give her even more credit for, again, just hammering Kamala on that, uh, on her record as a prosecutor. So that, uh, oh, uh, and again, there's, there's plenty to criticize about Tulsi Gabbard. She in the past has defended torture. She, sorry about that. She recently signed on to basically a condemnation of the BDS movement, which is boycotts, divestments, and and sanctions against Israel for occupying Palestinian territory and basically just treating the Palestinians as subhuman and basically creating what is effectively an apartheid-ish situation in that region. So... Uh, those things are the iffy spots in Tulsi's record. There's a few other things, but those are the major ones in my mind. So she has a lot of good qualities. And as with every other candidate, she also has some things that kind of make you go, eh, not sure about that. But uh, overall, she is a very good candidate and I'm very proud to support her specifically on the foreign policy front. So Tulsi, you have my support. Um, and then the third in, in, in third place, I would say, honestly, and this is, this is not a joke because sometimes people make fun of this person because she is a bit spacey and new-agey at times, but 
Marianne Williamson, you know, she she kind of taps into something that I don't think enough candidates tap into, um, which is the spiritual side of politics and society. You know, so... And even, believe it or not, I actually saw this because a family member of mine um, told me that Ben Shapiro actually kind of defended Marianne Williamson. And while he, I'm sure, would disagree with her on a number of issues, he did kind of give her props on her sort of not just focusing on policy, 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 but tapping into a more spiritual uh, aspect of American life. And I think that that's, uh, that, you know, credit where credit is due. Uh, I'm not I'm not a hack, so I'll give credit when I feel that it's due. And in this case, it is credit to Ben Shapiro on that point. So Marianne Williamson, I actually saw this great interview with her on Russell Brand's podcast, Under the Skin. And they talked about various issues, and she's basically said that Ever since people like Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman entered political discourse and their ideas basically became mainstream, we've become, in her words, sociopathic. You know, we become, you know, it's all about me. We become narcissistic. We become sociopathic. Um, It's all about me. Everybody else, you know, doesn't matter. I'm the only one that matters, so I don't care if uh, if every kid in my community gets fed. I don't care if they have health care. I don't care if they have insurance. I don't care if they can go to school or not, you know. So that is the Friedman-Rand ideology in a nutshell. And I'll admit, I, I bought into it for a little while. I don't anymore, obviously, but there was a time where I thought, wow, these guys are great and they're, you know, they're serious intellectuals and they're, you know, they've, they've really got a point there. It's like, no, 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 no. Uh, none of those statements are true, uh, except maybe on the intellectual front, possibly Ayn Rand, certainly not Milton Friedman. Milton Friedman was just a propagandist, you know, um, and Ayn Rand, she was, I, I would say she was quasi-intellectual, but also a propagandist. So, and Milton Friedman, you know, was a smart guy, admittedly, but I don't think he's as he was as smart as certain people made him out to be and still make him out to be to this day. Uh, and he's certainly not, in my mind, uh, an intellectual. So... That was Marianne Williamson's point was, hey man, since these ideas have have seeped into the mainstream of America, we've forgotten how to care for each other and love one another. And it's all about self-interest, you know, because that was the uh, that, that, that was the whole message really of Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman was, well, see, 
Guys, don't worry. You can be selfish. Uh, because if you're selfish, what you're actually doing by being selfish is helping everybody else. So they basically turn selfishness into... They basically twist it into an altruistic thing. So selfishness is altruism and altruism is selfishness. They basically flip it around. And that has totally damaged the discourse in this country and has damaged the way that we interact in this country in, in, in terms of uh, politics and taking care of each other and cooperating, you know, we become... Now, Marianne Williamson did say that individual liberty is important, and I agree with that. So I would totally agree with uh, Friedman and Rand on that point. But when it comes to economics, when it comes to resources, no, I don't believe that your self-interest, that, that your sole concern should be material acquisition in your own self-interest. It's like, no, I think uh, human nature, which is a word that gets thrown around a lot, because there's several aspects to human nature. If you look at uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for instance, there's several aspects to human nature that we need to feel secure, we need to feel included, we need to feel... Like, we're doing something that matters to people. So, uh, so that's what Marianne Williamson's point was uh, to Russell Brand. And Russell Brand, being a guy who has more... He, he, he has sympathy uh, for the anarchist movement. He agreed with uh, Williamson on that point and in a lot of other areas because he's very spiritual as well. And as I've said before, that's one of the things that helped him uh, get to where he is now where instead of being, uh, in his words, you know, being on crack and heroin all the time, now he is more, he's more, he's, he's now a recovering drug addict and he replaces the void created by uh, a lack of those drugs. He, he, he's replaced that with, you know, spirituality and martial arts and, you know, meditation, things of that nature. And that's beautiful. And so he really... The the conversation is great. I highly recommend people watch it. It's only an hour. Uh, I think like an hour and six or an hour and seven minutes or something like that. But anyway, uh, a little over an hour. It's a great conversation. It's a little shorter than uh, the Under the Skin episodes typically are. But that's just because, you know, Russell knew that Marianne Williamson is kind of busy at the moment. So he didn't want to take up all their time. Same thing with uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders went on Joe Rogan's podcast recently. And 
they also had a pretty good rapport and Joe was very respectful uh, of Bernie and Bernie's time because their conversation was only an hour as well. So anyway, so my top three would be Bernie, Tulsi, and Marianne Williamson. And at number four, although he used to be a bit higher, um, number four, I do kind of still have a, a, a little bit of a uh, soft spot, if you will, for Andrew Yang. Now, I also have a lot of problems with Andrew Yang. Like, he wants to... He wants the government to basically determine what is fake news and what is real news. You know, so basically, uh, he wants to take away people's First Amendment rights to free expression uh, because of what happened in the 2016 election where there was a few... There were a few... There were a few Facebook memes... Uh, and and Twitter memes and whatever. There were a few memes going around that were created by Russians to, you know, quote-unquote, meddle in our elections. So he wants to prevent that by uh, uh, using the government to separate what they determined to be real news and fake news. So that is very troublesome, and I totally disagree with that. I think people need to make up their minds for themselves what is real and what is false. So, totally disagree on that point. I totally disagree with... Um, <clears throat> sorry about that. I totally disagree, and I used to agree, by the way, I disagree with the concept of a universal basic income. I used to be for that, but in talking through anarchist and socialist circles, I've realized that it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. It's a it's basically a means of appeasement or at least a, an attempt at appeasement and it's basically a way to do away with uh, with social security, Medicare, Medicaid that you know it, it, it could very easily go down that road and whether Yang understands that or doesn't understand it, I'm not sure. But regardless, that is the role, uh, or that—that that is the road. Sorry, that is the road that many, especially on the left, feel that that's gonna that that's gonna take. You know, that's the road we're gonna go down. So. Uh, that's Andrew Yang. I agree with him on automation. I think we should promote automation. I think if we have automation, then people 
can pursue their passions in life and they don't have to be stuck in some boring dead-end job uh, pulling levers and assembling parts all day. You know, you know I, if you enjoy that, fine, go ahead and do it. But um, I, I would like to think that most people do not enjoy that and like typical workers are working just to pay the bills and to live. So, uh, that's my position on Andrew Yang in a nutshell. Now let's go to some of the least favorite, uh, Democrats in the 2020 debates. Uh, the 2020 candidates for president. I'm sorry. <laughs> so anyway, <clears throat> so anyway, let's start off with Pete Buttigieg. So Pete Buttigieg, again, he was the darling of the media for like a month where they did nothing but, you know, fawning praise and, Oh, isn't Pete, Pete Buttigieg so wonderful because he's gay He's a homosexual, and he can speak Norwegian. He can speak in foreign languages. Oh, he's so cultured and intellectual, you know? So that's uh, what the media did for several weeks uh, in regard to their coverage of Pete Buttigieg. So Pete Buttigieg does not support Medicare for All. He basically... In my view, his health care plan is basically a public option. And, I mean, a public option is, is I guess, kind of okay. But, if you really want to have a virtual guarantee... That everybody gets covered and that people have to pay very little out of pocket or nothing at all for doctor visits, much lower prices for prescription drugs, then Medicare for All is the way to go, man. That's you know really uh, the way it is. I also don't like how, because he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, I don't like how He's handled certain racial issues in South Bend. So there's a lot of issues with Pete Buttigieg. And that's why he's on the least favorite list. So since I did four, even though there's a lot more I could choose, even though I did four four for the... So I did four favorites for the favorite <laughs> section. Man, I can't talk today. So I did four people for the favorite Democrats section. So I'll do four others for the least favorite. And the others uh, that I'm not going to go over, you can either take it as me being indifferent to them or uh, and or me you know basically sending out a signal that they're just so irrelevant and insignificant that 
it's not really even worth covering them. So, um, Buttigieg, he's not my least favorite, but, uh, like, he's not, like, the absolute worst. So, let's put him at number four. So, number four for least favorite, Pete Buttigieg. Number three, least favorite. Without a doubt, I would say Cory Booker. Cory Booker is a slimy, sniveling, you know, just scheming, conniving snake, you know? He is... You know, he's one of these people that he grandstands all the time and he he pretends to care about progressive policies and he just doesn't uh, uh, he doesn't really care about anybody but himself. And that applies to almost everyone on that stage. I think, except for the people that are in my favorites and they're in my favorites. Cause I can tell they really care about these issues and, uh, they care about people in general. So that would be again, uh, Bernie Tulsi, Andrew Yang and Marianne Williamson. So, those guys, uh, I have, like I said, I have a lot of problems with each of them, but I think overall, in each case, their pros outweigh their cons. So, uh, but anyway, let's get back to the least favorite <laughs> uh, conversation. So, Cory Booker... He's just so fake. He comes across as so fake, kind of like Beto O'Rourke. He's got the fake politician voice and the, and the you know the the scripted rhythm and cadence, you know, and whatever, the rehearsed rhythm and cadence and you know, flowery, banal rhetoric and blah blah blah. So he's got that. And I don't know. Uh, see, the reason why I put Cory Booker at number three is because he is actually, you know what? Let's do five for the least favorite. Let's do that. Let's do five. Because uh, I definitely need to put uh, at least one more person there. Uh, in the least favorite category. So the reason why I put Cory Booker at number three is because I actually used to like him. I saw his speech at, I think it was the Democratic National Convention or something like that. And I was like, wow. And I'd never heard of him before. I was like, wow, this guy... This guy is pretty cool and he's, you know, he he's saying, you know, all this, you know, positive and, and um, unifying 
rhetoric. You know, I I really like this guy, and he presented himself as far more progressive than he was, and then through the help of people like Kyle Kalinske, I was able to see that Cory Booker was a total charlatan, and he doesn't care about progressive policies. He is a total, total shill for pharmaceutical companies because a lot of them uh, are based in New Jersey. So, and since he's a senator uh, from New Jersey, he is going to do their bidding naturally. So, uh, that's Cory Booker. Again, he's kind of irrelevant. He's not going to win. So, you know, it's, you know, let's not waste our breath talking about him. So, that would be. So, I'll, I'll move uh, these guys, uh, Pete Buttigieg and Cory Booker, down one spot. So. At, at number five, Pete Buttigieg. Number four, Cory Booker. Because I added a spot. So number three. This is number three now. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Number three, Kamala Harris. I don't even know where to begin with Kamala Harris. She's, again, she did good hammering away at Biden in the first debate and hammering away at a couple of the other candidates as well. But... Uh, she's just, again, she has the fake, contrived politician cadence, and her record is terrifying to me, because number one, again, she left at the prospect of legalizing marijuana, and then she tried to pander to millennials, uh, by referencing people like Snoop Dogg. Uh, in, in relation to marijuana. And she even said that she tried it when she was in college and, you know, while she was listening to people like Snoop Dogg and thing like things like that, uh, artists like that. So she's a total hypocrite. Uh, and it's like, God, what a ridiculous person. So total hypocrite on the marijuana issue she didn't prosecute Steve Mnuchin when she could have. Steve Mnuchin is one of uh, Donald Trump's economic advisors, and he... <clears throat> Sorry about that. And basically, he owned this company called One West Bank. And, or at least, you know, worked... I think he owned it, though. Uh... So he was part of this company called One West Bank. And he was directly involved in foreclosing homes early, specifically on elderly people, so they would sell faster and he would make more money. So that's obviously illegal. And Kamala Harris could have prosecuted him on that. But here's the catch. Steve Mnuchin donated to Kamala Harris's campaign, so so he got off scot free. 
and is now, you know, in the Trump administration. So he's in a presidential administration when he should be in a damn jail cell right now, rotting in prison for what he did to the people that had loans and mortgages through One West Bank. So, ugh. Kamala, Kamala, Kamala. Unbelievable. So, let's go to number two, shall we? <laughs> number two least favorite. Joe Biden. Joe Biden is insufferable. Where to begin with Joe Biden? So, at a speech uh, that he was giving, he basically told millennials and Gen Z people to suck it up and like, oh, give me a break um, when he was asked about that generation having uh, a rough go of it for the past decade uh, since they graduated from college into the worst economy, you know, millennials specifically, graduated into the worst economy since the Great Depression, and they're desperate uh, for a little bit of assistance to get back on their feet and be productive again. And Joe Biden just poo-pooed that, and he's like, oh, get over it, you know. So that's the first thing right there. Also, as I mentioned before, credit to Kamala Harris. She called him out on his... Uh, on his past support of busing, de- uh, uh, or I'm sorry, his his past um, opposition. Yeah, that's a better word. His past opposition to busing desegregation. So he didn't oppose. Uh, he didn't oppose segregation. He opposed desegregation on buses and he basically tried to couch it in hey man I, I I just think that this should be decided at the state level and I don't think the federal government should be involved in state transit systems and blah 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 so and also he's made incredibly bigoted remarks about illegal immigrants and black people and he's just a bad guy. You know, he's just a terrible, terrible human being. And uh, once again, the, the media didn't cover any of that stuff. But what they have covered is, oh, he's he was Obama's VP. Therefore, he's awesome. Vote for Biden. You know, it's like, oh my God. God, really, guys? Really? So, that's Joe Biden. And I was considering putting him at number one, but there's one person in this race, I guess you could call it, that I hate above the rest. At number one, drumroll... Uh, I'm not going to do a drum roll, but you can just imagine a drum roll 
uh, in your head. And I'll pause for dramatic effect. Number one, John Delaney. Holy crap, this guy is... Oh my god. He is... Just a loathsome... Absolute scumbag. You know, that's that's like the nicest way of describing John Delaney. So his big thing... Uh, is telling Democrats that they've gone too far to the left and Medicare for all is an impossible, you know, fantasy pie in the sky policy that we can never uh, accomplish. Uh, And I don't think you'll be surprised to know that he's incredibly uh, bought and paid for (laughs) by health insurance companies. So, hmm, I wonder why he's defending the private insurance companies. So, yeah, so he's like, Medicare for all is impossible. We should focus on real solutions and not impossible dreams or whatever he said. And, of course, he doesn't tell you necessarily what those solutions are. He just says real solutions. And we're supposed to think that that's like a a, a smart point. Uh, when you didn't give any specifics, you know, on what you mean by that. And, but we all know what he means. Basically, the status quo is good enough, you know, which, which is basically what Biden is running on and, uh, what most of the candidates think, although some of them are not running on it, but. Some of them definitely think that, and they're just pretending to be progressive in order to pander to the Democratic base. So, uh, oh, and credit to Pete Buttigieg. Now, do I think he believes what I'm about to tell you that he said? Do I think he believes this? No, Uh, because, again, he doesn't support things like Medicare for all and free college and all of that. He doesn't support those policies, but rhetorically, I thought it was great in, I think it was the second uh, time that he was, that, that they were in the debate. He, I think may have even addressed John Delaney where he was talking where uh, one of them, either Biden or Delaney or somebody like that was talking about how, you know, uh, we need to, uh, go for the status quo so we can work with Republicans on uh, so we can work with Republicans more often. And to his credit, Buttigieg was like, hey man, they're gonna you know the Republicans are gonna call us socialists no matter what we do, no matter how far to the right we go, they're gonna call us socialists anyway because they've been doing that for, over half a century, so, uh, and, and especially more aggressively in the past decade or so, um, where the Republicans have been led to believe that, for instance, Barack Obama was a socialist for Obamacare. Meanwhile, Obamacare number one, keeps the private health insurance companies in place. And number two, it was a Republican plan. 
the roots of which extend all the way back to Richard Nixon. And in the 80s, it really got going under, uh, uh, or it really got going because there was a, uh, there were reports that were published by the Heritage Foundation saying, hey man, the Democrats are proposing single payer. Uh, we don't like that, so we want to go with this option, which was the individual mandate system, which is most of what Obamacare was. So, and it's good that it expanded Medicaid and, you know, it, it, it protected people from pre-existing conditions. Uh, that was all well and good, but it doesn't go nearly as far enough as it should go. So Buttigieg's point was like, hey, man, uh, the Republicans are going to call us socialists no matter what we do, so we may as well do the policies that we're supposed to believe in and that we're elected to enact. Now, again, do I believe he believes any of this? No, I think he's full of shit. But, um, but I still think it was a good strategy from a rhetorical standpoint. And there you have it. So there's my, uh, my four favorite Democratic candidates and five least favorite Democratic candidates. So... Just a quick recap for each, and then we'll move on to the Dayton and El Paso shootings. So, <clears throat> on the uh, four of my favorite candidates list, we have Bernie Sanders, Tulsi Gabbard, Marianne Williamson, and Andrew Yang. On the flip side, so on the uh, people that I dislike the most, we have <clears throat> at number five. Sorry about that. Uh, at number five, we have Pete Buttigieg. Number four, Cory Booker. Number three, Kamala Harris. Number two, Joe Biden. And number one, John Delaney. So there you have it, folks, and let's move on now. So as I'm sure most of you are aware, especially if you're uh, an American uh, listener to this podcast, there was a horrific... horrific shooting that uh, that experienced uh, so it was El Paso uh, and Dayton and on sorry about that <clears throat> so Uh, over a week ago now, there were, there were, there was a mass shooting first, I believe in El Paso and then Dayton like the next day. 
so um this is a very tragic issue and according to a uh, a USA Today article that was written yesterday uh, as of right now a, a combined 31 people uh, have been pronounced dead as a result of this shooting now one of the guys and oh it was the same day uh, so anyway Uh, there was one, uh, so the one shooting, <clears throat> sorry about that. So, uh, in El Paso, that, that's the, the shooting that first took place. Uh, according to, I have a CNN article here, at least 22 people were killed and more than two dozen were injured in a mass shooting uh, at a shopping center in El Paso, Texas. So he was the guy that shot um, people at this mall and he was, his name was Patrick Crucius and basically he wrote in his manifesto that he left that he wanted to quote, stop a Hispanic invasion of Texas. And this is, uh, a direct result of people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity, and again, Rush Limbaugh, and all of these other people, this is uh, the consequence of them having such a large platform, is they push out this propaganda 24-7 about, oh, there's immigrants invading our country, look at the southern border, we have a crisis going on at the southern border, ah, fear, be afraid, you know? So... There's this guy who, uh, he basically, so, so he hears this rhetoric and he decides, okay, there's, there's an invasion at the Southern border. So I'm going to do my part to try to stop this quote unquote invasion. And lo and behold, he shoots up almost two dozen people in a mall and uh, injures two dozen more. Uh, so 48 people were basically shot and uh, or 46. So about, well, maybe about, well, let's just say 50 for a round number. So about 50 people were shot by this guy. And all because... Propagandists like Tucker Carlson 
are extremely irresponsible. And something tells me that Tucker didn't go on his show the next night and say, you know what, I apologize for my rhetoric uh, and will try to be more accurate in my representation of the situation at the border in the future. No, he didn't do that. In fact, if anything, Fox News in general is deflecting now and they're like, okay, yeah, the uh, El Paso shooter was a far-right lunatic, but hey, the Date the Dayton shooter, Connor Betts, uh, who was killed by police uh, after 30 seconds. Um... So they're like, hey, did you know that this Connor Betts guy, uh, did you know that he was an Elizabeth Warren supporter? You know, so therefore, that makes him, quote unquote, far left. And so therefore, the far left is to blame. And... That's an incredibly misleading point because, first of all, Elizabeth Warren is not far left by any stretch of the imagination. To be fair, she does want to uh, impose more taxes and more restrictions on Wall Street, which is great. But overall, she is not my idea of a far lefty. So that's point number one. Point number two is she has not it's it's a false equivalence if you're talking about Elizabeth Warren versus people like Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson who have been saying we have an invasion at the southern border we have an invasion at the southern border you know this is so that's their inflammatory rhetoric which is practically an incitement uh to violence against these these poor uh refugees and asylum seekers so, obviously, that's not uh, the cause of the uh, El Paso shooting. That's, you know, some lone nut. Uh, but when Elizabeth Warren proposes increasing taxes on Wall Street, somehow Fox News treats that as just as much of uh, just as much of an incitement to violence against people as liter- the literal dehumanization of asylum seekers at the southern border. So, absolute false equivalence. I'm not a big fan of Elizabeth Warren, but in, in this instance, I'm going to defend her. You know, so it's just one of those slick partisan tricks that Fox News does. You know, like, Oh, uh, forget about the crazies on our side. Did you know that uh, the Dayton shooter was a far lefty? You know, so Antifa is to blame, you know. And we don't know, by the way, we don't know if he did this shooting for a political reason or not. So it's just so funny how Fox News and other right-wing outlets are like, Oh, the left, why do you guys politicize tragedies? You're politicizing a tragedy right now. You're politicizing the Dayton uh, 
tragedy in, uh, specifically. So, I don't know. So, having said all of that, again, my heart goes out to the families of the victims. You know, I'm, I'm terribly sorry for what happened. And obviously, uh, you can't get your kids back, you know, that you lost in this shooting, in both of these shootings. But, uh, I think that we have to celebrate these people. After, understandably, a period of mourning, we have to celebrate these people and honor their lives. So, the two parties have used this as an excuse to go into their typical talking points on guns. So for the Republicans, it's, there's a mass shooting happened. There's a, there's these mass shootings that happened and that's why we need more guns. We need more people to be armed. You know, that's the Republican position. The Democratic position is basically more regulation, more regulation, more regulation. You know, uh, now it's a straw man if people say Democrats want to ban guns. No, some of them want to ban assault weapons, but... I don't think there's a Democrat that exists that uh, has said, I literally want to ban all guns uh, from public use. So, my position, like I said earlier, my position on gun control has changed significantly over the years. I used to be uh, one of those people that said uh, basically ban guns, you know, uh, just just ban them. Uh, it's, it, and I didn't realize at the time, uh, this was probably about five or six years ago, I didn't realize at the time that those gun bans are basically you're setting yourself up if you're the public you're setting yourself up for the state to just annihilate you and you don't even have a chance uh, of defending yourself. You don't have a shot at it. No pun intended. Uh, so, uh, I realized eventually, uh, okay, um, well, let's do, uh, handguns and hunting rifles. Let's, let's go with that. And now I'm fully on the side of, I think you should be able to have 
whatever gun you want, uh, as long as you're responsible with it, I still support background checks and that's, but that's really about it. Cause I think that, and maybe some training, I, I don't know, but I think, uh, that that's a pretty reasonable, uh, position, but my main point that I want to make here is the state and corporations have a vested interest in armed police and God forbid the workers uh, try to uh, enact, try to get real change enacted uh, in society. Well, then the owner class and the state can just, you know, open fire on people at will and they wouldn't have the tools necessary to defend themselves. So I've uh, basically over the past few years done a complete 180 on my position. And it's not because I, you know, I'm, I'm a big flip flopper. It's just, it's like I said earlier, it's one of those things where as I read more about it, and as I thought more about it, I realized that gun laws are usually going to affect the poor and the working class. And uh, it's not like the state is talking about banning police officers from using guns. So uh, that that would be my main point to that. As a person that used to advocate banning guns, I understand that position if, say, you were one of these parents that lost your child in this in one of these tragedies. Uh, I understand it if um, you're an outsider and you have sympathy for these families and you empathize with them. I get it. But... You know, banning guns is just, it's really risky and it's not something that you want to do if you ever want to have a shot at an actually free and fair democratic society. It's just not a good idea to give up uh, mass quantities of guns. So... That's my position uh, on gun control and gun bans and all that uh, in a nutshell. Uh, I, I really wish we could uh, find better solutions, but I, I don't really see too many better solutions other than again background checks and maybe regulating bump stocks but but we just need you know I would say stricter background checks and that's it uh just to just to be uh safe in that area and uh you know like I said I feel horribly for the parents that went through this and, you know, other family members 
uh, of the people of the victims of this shooting. There's a lot of evil uh, in the world, and and if you're truly truly evil, ideally, you shouldn't have a gun. But again, I'm not willing to punish the overwhelming majority of gun owners who are responsible for the actions of two heinous, evil idiots. So, um, yeah, basically, uh, that's it. I don't really have much more to say, uh, apart from I'm not a gun expert. I have some friends that own guns because I live in a rural area. Uh, I have friends that hunt and do all that stuff. I uh, I have no issues with gun ownership anymore. Uh, I totally um, support it. I personally do not own a gun and nobody in my family owns a gun, but I totally support the right of people to bear arms because the working class in particular needs to be prepared uh, in case there's an attack uh, on us uh, by either or. It could be either or. The state or... Sorry about that. The state... Or the corporations, the 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 owner class, um, because as I've said a million times, I don't support offensive violence, and I don't agree with the logic that, well, the uh, structures of the workplace and uh, the the owner class is inherently oppressive. Therefore, it is an offensive. Uh, they are making the, the the first strike, if you will. That you know, So we're just defending ourselves. It's like, nah. Until, you know, that, that gets really messy very easily. So what I would say is, if, if say, you're organizing a strike... And the uh, owner calls the cops and tries to break up the strike. Then go grab arms and defend yourselves. But uh, I'm just not comfortable with offensive attacks. Because number one, it's counterproductive. And it's going to make you look like the asshole. Number two, it's just against my principles as a person. You know, I view it as immoral to act in a way that is not out of an absolute necessity for self-defense. So, there you have it. I'm not sure... When I'll be back with you guys, I'll try to do something next week. But uh, in the meantime, you can enjoy this special 
that I've done for y'all. So, um, anyway, take care, and I will see you guys next time here on the left side of Liberty. Thank you.